feel the love and the sweat. Feel it all right now. <laughs> it's great. My name is John McDonald. I'm the DSM High School pastor here at New Life. Love you guys. Oh, love young people. Love young people. It's been such an honor to serve under David Perkins and serve with the Desperation staff. I'm just so honored and I uh, love you guys so much. Uh, excited. Excited for this morning. I'm believing that God is going to change lives this morning. That we're going to have to call in people to pick up the chains off the floor this morning. Because so many are going to break. So I'm just excited about what God is going to do. So I've got my lovely wife here, Holly. Holly, stand up. Wave. Oh, She's been a partner with me in ministry for many, many years, just ministering to this young generation. I've got a, a six-year-old named Hudson and a four-year-old named Maddox. I call Hudson Wild Man Hud, and I call Maddox Mad Dog Maddox. <laughs> They're crazy. So it's a lot of fun raising boys, but just a little bit. So uh, are there any Nazarenes here? Any Nazarenes? I know, we got, I know we got some from Michigan. Are there Nazarenes anyplace else? Yeah, Nazarenes. We have a great marketing campaign. We're pretty good. How many of you even know what a Nazarene is? Four of you. That's great. That's awesome. Well, I grew up Nazarene, and uh, I was raised Nazarene. My dad was a Nazarene pastor, and it was funny. You know, I went to college and, and you know, got my degree in religion and biblical languages and, you know, all that. But it was funny. I got out of college, and I began to experience a whole bunch of stuff that I did not, no one taught me about in college. No one taught me anything about it growing up, being in the Nazarene church. I mean, they didn't teach me about bondage. They didn't teach me about strongholds. They didn't teach me about the tactics of the enemy or how the enemy works or how the enemy gains influence in your life. And I found myself, even out of college, I found myself following God, serving God, ready to become a youth pastor, still found myself struggling with bondage in a few areas. But I didn't know how to be free. And God sent me some great mentors into my life, a, a Rob Paul, a Chad Klein, a, a Ron Frizzell, who began to teach me and walk with me and talk to me, train me, raise me up, equip me to break the strongholds. And I'm forever grateful to those men and to those mentors. So it was about five years ago, I had was here at Desperation Conference. I've been coming since 05. It was about five years ago. I think I was sitting right up here with one of my intercessors. We were worshiping, and the Lord gave me a very, very clear vision that night. And in this vision, I saw this vast, I want you just to imagine this with me. In this vision, I saw this vast, vast valley. And I mean, if you ever seen like a wheat field, it's just a golden wheat field that just goes on forever. That's what it looked like from on top, looking down. Just this vast golden valley. And it was surrounded on both sides of this valley by, by, by mountains. But it was, it was vast. It was big. And on one side of this valley was this black, dark mass. I mean, just, just covered the entire side of that valley. And on this side of the valley, it was, it was this young generation. I mean, it was just, it was just hundreds and thousands of, of just young people as far as the eye could see. And in this battle, they began to clash. And this darkness, this darkness was consuming this young generation. It was just consuming this young generation. I mean, they were losing the fight. They were losing the battle. And God spoke to me in that moment. And he said, I want you to equip this young generation. I want you to equip them to fight. I want you to equip them to win, to have victory, to live holy and blameless in my presence. Equip them, give them the knowledge, give them the understanding. And I've never stopped. <laughs> Since that moment, I've never stopped fighting for this young generation. I've never stopped fighting to equip you, to help you understand the spiritual battle that's raging. And if you pictured that little vision in your mind, you understand the spiritual battle that's raging because the enemy hates you. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. God in his grace and his mercy revealed that to us in John 10, 10. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He is not your friend. 
He has it out for you. But you already have the victory. You just have to learn how to fight. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. We're going to learn how to fight. We're going to learn how to tear these strongholds down. We're going to learn how to crush the enemy under our feet so that he never has any right to our lives or any influence in our lives for the rest of our days. See, I believe God has called you in this young generation to pursue holiness, to walk blameless in his presence, and to live with great power. Now, why aren't we winning? Why aren't we winning this battle for our generation? And the reason that we're losing is because too many young people have bought into the enemy's lies. And it's led them into bondage and into sin, into a place where they're trapped, where they've become non-effective in advancing the kingdom of heaven. See, it's really hard to advance the kingdom when all you're doing is being focused on the sin that you're struggling with day in and day out. It's hard to win that battle for righteousness. It's hard to win that battle for holiness when we're continually buying into the lies of the enemy. Now, some of you here in this room this morning, you're in so deep and you don't know how to get out. Some of you have been living this roller coaster ride for months, maybe years, and can't seem to overcome the habitual sin that entangles you, that is in your life. Some of you are at the point where this idea of living free Living with complete freedom in your life has just become this impressive idea that can't really be attained in reality, which is a lie in and of itself. I want to tell you this morning that freedom is yours. The price has already been paid for your freedom. And here's the gut level truth this morning. Gut level truth. You're in bondage this morning because you have believed the distorted lies that the enemy has been feeding you. Or you know the truth, but you've chosen to remain in bondage. I'm believing with all my heart that many of you, when you walk out these doors this morning for lunch, after this session, after experiencing the Val experience, after these two sessions, you're going to walk out a different person. You're going to walk out new. You're going to walk out fresh. You're going to walk out with power. You're going to walk out with authority. And you're going to walk out free. The sin that you've been enslaved to is going to be crushed. We're going to crush it. Scripture in John chapter 8 verses 31 through 32 says that something sets you free. What is it? What sets you free? The truth. The truth sets you free. Jesus said to the people that believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Scripture also says just a little bit further, John 8 Verse 44, he's talking about our enemy. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there was no truth in him. And when he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. That's all the enemy knows how to do is lie. So Satan is this liar and a deceiver. So on one side, you have the enemy feeding you and burying you in lies. And on the other side, you have the righteous savior of the world, Jesus Christ, feeding you the truth, feeding you his word, trying to teach you to listen to his voice so that you can overcome the lies. And here's the spiritual battle for your souls that's raging over you. It's happening right now. There's a spiritual battle going on for you. And listen, let me speak some truth into you this morning. I want to start with Romans chapter 6 and reading portions of 1 through 12 because I want to equip you this morning to be victorious. So I want you to get out your Bible. If you have your Bibles, get them out. I want you to get out a pen because I'm going to have you underline a couple phrases. If you're using, you know, an iPhone or some other phone to look up your Bible stuff, that's great. Just highlight it. I want you to highlight these things. Romans chapter 6, portions of verses 1 through 12, says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, underline that, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Verse 6, you know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. Underline this and highlight it, do whatever you can, star it. We are no longer slaves to sin. 
Underline that. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Verse 11. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead. Underline this. Dead to the power of sin. And alive to God through Christ Jesus. Dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Underline that, star it, highlight it. You are dead to sin this morning. And you are alive to Christ Jesus. Passage of scripture goes on to say, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Basically it's saying, hey, do not let sin dictate your choices. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Now, you know what this passage is saying? It's saying that when we sin as Christians... Now, I want you to catch this. When we sin as as Christians, meaning you have received Christ, you've asked him to forgive you of your sins, his blood has washed you and covered you, but when we sin as Christians, when we go ahead, we make a bad choice, we make a wrong choice, we go against what we know what God wants us to do, and we go against that, you've received the truth, but then you sin. You do not sin as slaves, because God said he has set you free from the power of sin. You sin as individuals with the freedom of choice. As Christians, when we sin, we sin because we choose to sin. Plain and simple. Those who don't know Christ couldn't stop sinning even if they tried. Because they don't have the blood of Christ. They They haven't been endorsed into that power of God to defeat sin, to crush sin. So those that aren't following Christ, they couldn't stop sinning even if they wanted to. They don't have that. They don't have that power. They truly are slaves to sin. But according to scripture that we just read, we are not slaves to sin. We are alive to God. This means that when we sin as Christians, it's because we have chosen to do so. Ouch. That's like a knife in our hearts, isn't it? When we sin, it's because we've chosen to do so. Now, I'm a follower of Christ and I say I love him. Yet I've chosen this sin over his goodness and righteousness. And all of a sudden, the enemy has, right, has you right where he wants you. He's got you trapped and in bondage. Because listen, sin will always lead to more sin. It doesn't just stop. It will always lead to more. And if you're in bondage to some sin, whether it be lust or pornography or bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone or whatever it may be this morning, it becomes very hard for you to be a force for the kingdom of heaven on this earth. It becomes hard and virtually impossible for you to carry the level of anointing that God wants to give you when you're struggling with sin and focus on that sin every day. This is why your generation is being consumed. Listen, God is searching to and fro, looking for young people to rise up, to be counted as righteous, to bring revival to the generation that really needs it. If sin is our choice, I want to know where our young warriors are who will take a stand and crush it. I want to start turning the corner here. I want to give you a couple truths this morning. We've touched on it a bit. First truth is I am dead to sin. And here's what I actually want you to do. This is the middle of the room. So everybody on this half, when I go like this, I want you to say dead to sin. Ready? One, two, three. Dead to sin. That's a truth that we have got. That's a truth that is going to lay foundation for us this morning. I am dead to sin. Oh, that was bad. That's better. I'm dead to sin. Romans six eleven. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Before Christ, we were slaves to sin, and in slavery, we committed sins. We developed sinful habits regardless of how good we thought we were. But Jesus Christ came into this sinful world and he took our place on the cross. He took the hit for us. He took our punishment. He died to sin. And through our union with him, when we received him, we became in union with him. We received him as Lord and Savior. We also died to that sin. Listen, the only influence sin has over you is the influence that you've given it. This means you don't have to sin, you choose to sin. But at the same time, you have died to it and Christ's freedom is available to you this morning. In fact, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's ready to dump it out. He's waiting to pour it on you. He's ready to lavish you 
with his freedom because that's his will for you. That's his desire for you according to his word. Second truth, so that's part of the foundation. I'm dead to sin. Second part of the foundation is I'm alive and united with Christ. So everyone on this half of the room, when I point to you, I want you to say, I'm alive and united with Christ. That's good. So I'm Let's just say I'm united with Christ. That's shorter. All right. All right. Foundation laid. Dead to sin, united with Christ. Paul said in Romans 6.18 that we've become slaves to righteousness. Because we are united with Christ, we are also united with him in his power. Do you think Christ has the power to defeat sin? Do you think the cross was powerful enough to break the chains and the bondage that you have found yourselves in? I do. Why else would he die on the cross if he didn't have the power to break bondage and sin? His blood has that power. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Now, because we're united with him in power, we have this ability to overcome sin through Christ. And guys, listen, we have all been there. We've all known the feelings of shame and guilt and hopelessness caused by some sin that seems to have control or power over us. But when we embrace these two truths, I am dead to sin. I don't have to be a slave anymore. And recognize that I'm alive to Christ and united with him in power. All of a sudden, we realize that we can kick sin's butt if we want to. The desire has to be there. And here's the hard issue that I run, to all, and run into all the time, talking with students, meeting with students, meeting with parents. The hard issue is too many, too many love to sin more than they love God. If you want to crush the sin in your life, you can through the power of Christ. And I'm going to give you those tools this morning. But before I give you those tools, I've got to teach you just a little bit about the tactics of the enemy. I have to teach you how sin gains influence and control in your life. And to do this, I want to go back to the very first murder in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. It's Genesis chapter 4. But Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. The Scripture should be on the screen too as well. Genesis chapter 4. I want you to listen to the story very carefully. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, listen to this, underline this in scripture. If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, meaning you disobey, Scripture says sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Now, the New Living Translation says sin is crouching at your door. It is eager to control you. But you must master it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. Now, I used to always ask myself the question and wonder, you know, when I was younger and reading this story, I said, God, why? Why? I don't understand. I mean, I mean, you know, Cain was this, you know, this farmer guy. He had crops and he brought some of the first, you know, you know, you know, offerings of the soil to the Lord, you know, and, and he was rejected. And Abel, he was like this, you know, this shepherd, this hunter guy, you know, you know, maybe a little rougher and he maybe he had facial hair and, and whatever. And, 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 and he, you know, he brought part, portions of, of his flock, the first part of his, the best of his flock before the Lord as an offering, as a sacrifice. Why, God, why did you look on favor with, to Abel, but you didn't look with favor upon Cain? That's a big question to me. I was like, I don't understand. But the key is found in the passage that we read. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, the Old Testament Leviticus, you know, process of sacrifices and different things, they didn't exist at that point. There was one sacrifice at that time. It was a blood sacrifice that was required by God. A blood sacrifice. Abel brought the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Cain did not. Cain was disobedient. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he did not do it. 
And scripture says, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through 27, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. We're going to talk about footholds in a minute. But this is what Cain did. I don't know if this was hours. I don't know if it was days, weeks, or months later. But Cain, instead of working this issue out with God, instead of just coming before God, repenting, and being blessed, and being received, and being accepted, and going on with, his, with blessing from the Lord, instead of doing that, he got bitterness. He, he had allowed bitterness and anger to fester towards his brother. Because his brother was received, and he was mad that his brother was received, and he wasn't. And he became angry, he became bitter, and this began to fester. Begin to grow in him and fester in him. And I don't know what the span of time was. But according to scripture, you're not supposed to do that. Or else you're going to give the devil a foothold. And the devil gained a foothold. And pretty soon he turned that anger and that bitterness into thoughts of murder. And thoughts are seeds of future deeds. Let me remind you. Thoughts are seeds of future deeds. And he began to think about murder. And then he went out and he killed his brother. See, the principle from this passage of scripture is that sin gives the devil an opportunity and opens the door and allows him a place of influence in our lives. Now, I want you guys to, I want you guys to really watch this. If you guys will grasp this, this will change your life. If you will grasp the next thing that I'm going to teach you, the spiritual principle, it will change your life. And you will gain wisdom and you will gain understanding and how the enemy works. Now, listen. All sin starts out with a lie that we believe. It starts out with something that we believe. So we believe a lie. And then that lie is birth, gives birth to sin in our lives because we believe something that wasn't true and it begins to push us away from God and towards sin. So here's what happens. We have choices that we make. Every choice you make is gonna open the door to God, or it's going to open, do- open the door to the enemy. Now, I'm not talking about choices like, hey, I'm at McDonald's. Am I going to get a Big Mac or a chicken sandwich? I'm not talking about those choices. Or for me, the big choice is when I'm at, you know, Cold Stone, am I going to get the birthday cake remix? Or am I going to get like the chocolate chip cookie dough monster thing, whatever it is? You know, I mean, I'm not talking about those choices. I'm talking about the choices that you make that open doors. And they will either open a door to the enemy or they will open a door to God. This is how the enemy works. This is how it worked in the passage of scripture. Cain remained angry and the door to his heart opened up. So this is what happens. We make a choice. We make a choice against, against what God would want us to do, against God's will, against God's command, whatever it be. And, and remember, God's commands are laid out in his word. But there's also times that God speaks to us and says, hey, I want you to do this. Or this is the decision I have for you. Or if this is the path. And we choose to stray from that path and go take our own path. All of it's sin when we disobey God. All right? So when we make a choice to disobey God, you know what happens in our lives? A door to our heart opens. And you know what the enemy does? According to scripture, he gets a foot into that door. Now, do you think the enemy is going to be happy with a foot in the door? Oh, no. He's going to weasel his way in. And pretty soon, before you know it, that foothold has turned into a stronghold. It's turned into a habitual sin, because he's not going to be happy with that. Remember John 10, 10, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He doesn't want just a little foothold in your life. Now, the Greek word for foothold is topos. Everybody say topos. Here's what it literally means. It means a place of occupancy. So when we make a bad choice, we make a wrong choice that goes against God's command or we're disobedient. That door opens. The enemy gets a foothold. He means he gains a place of occupancy in your life. Means he gains the right, the legal right to begin to influence you. Why? Because you gave it to him. The only way the enemy gives influence gains influence in our lives is because we've given him the right to have influence in our lives by the choices that we make. So when we make a wrong choice, the door opens to the enemy. He gets a foothold in our lives. And he's not going to stop there. He's going to turn that foothold. We'll just leave that open. He's going to turn that foothold into a stronghold. 
Sin is always birthed by a lie that we've chosen to believe. That's how it comes into being. And let me remind you, let me remind you, every Christian in this room has a bullseye on their back. Every Christian in this room has a bullseye on your back. You think the enemy cares about all those he already has and controls? Do you think all the ones that haven't received Christ, do you think they're a threat to his kingdom? Of course not. He's not worried about them. They're already his. He's worried about you. You know why he's worried about you? Because you are the generation that is going to destroy his kingdom. You are the generation that is a threat to him. And you have a bullseye on your back and he's going to do whatever he can to get you to buy into one of his lies. He's going to get you to do whatever you can. He's going to do whatever he can to get you to go against God's will. Can you imagine if every young person in this room were to pursue righteousness and God's presence and allow God to define you instead of this world? I mean, neither the gates nor all the armies of hell could stand in your way or hold you back from advancing the kingdom of heaven. If we would just get it, if we would just allow God and the Holy Spirit to rise up inside of us, nothing could stop us. Nothing. We would be an unstoppable force. So we give the enemy the legal right or permission to influence us and assault us when we disobey God. When we disobey God, the door to our heart opens and the enemy wedges his foot, gains the place of occupancy in your life with the future plan to steal, kill, and destroy you. Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. I will come in and have fellowship with him and and he with me. You know what that means? When he says that, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Man, he's gonna have intimacy with you. He's gonna be the one that's running your life. He's going to be the one that's walking with you and protecting you and and his Holy Spirit's going to be showing you the right steps to take and and the right decisions to make when we open the door to God. See, every choice you make opens the door. It opens the door to the enemy or it opens the door to God. And Jesus is there knocking. He's probably knocking on you this morning. Let me in. Let me break those strongholds. Let me rip that sin from your life. Let me restore you. Let me redeem you. Let me pour my Holy Spirit in you. All you got to do is open the door. When you make godly choices, your heart opens up to the Father. And you know what happens? This is cool. This is the grace and mercy of God. God creates strongholds of righteousness in your life. Strongholds are not easily broken. And when you have strongholds of righteousness, the enemy cannot break those. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Or be transformed by the renewing of your minds might be another version that you guys might recognize. But I love that. A new person by changing the way you think. See, the enemy has gained influence and created a wrong pattern of thinking in this generation. There are wrong patterns of thinking. That's what a stronghold is. The foothold is a place of occupancy. It's the open door to begin to influence, but that influence advances and it flows into a stronghold or a pattern of wrong thinking. See, young girls who struggle with bulimia and anorexia, pattern of wrong thinking. They believe some lies of the enemy. Either they're not good looking enough or they don't look like the models in the magazines or they're too overweight, or whatever the lie is, that God has fed them, they've bought into it. And it's led them into addictive, sinful behavior. Young people who struggle with pornography and masturbation, wrong pattern of thinking. The enemy's lied to you. He's told you that satisfaction can be gained through some of these things, and it's a lie. And you know it as well as I do. Because satisfaction is not gained through those things. Young people who struggle with depression and cutting. Wrong pattern of thinking. You simply believed a lie. See, we've defined several major, uh, we're going to define and identify several major open doors that are impacting your generation. And for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to expose the lies of the enemy. We're just going to expose the lies... And we're going to allow God to bring freedom to this house. 
So we're going to go to door number one. And I hope this is door number one. Door number one. One of the big entry points that the enemy gains influence on your generation is idolatry. Now, I know what idolatry is. Listen, I was in high school. I didn't get saved until I was 19. You know what I lived for in high school? I lived for sports and I lived for myself. That's what I lived for in high school. That was the things that I worshipped. I worshipped sports and myself. You see, idolatry is like this revolving door that allows the enemy to wreak havoc in your life whenever he pleases. An idol, by definition, is an object of excessive attachment. Say excessive attachment. See, idolatry is possibly one of the most common strongholds in both the Eastern and Western world. Now, I'm not sure that most of you really struggle with worshiping little statues of Buddha. Or you probably don't struggle with having little shrines set up in your house and you're worshiping Hindu gods. That's not how the enemy works in our nation. See, in our nation, in America, the enemy is much more subtle in the way that he deceives. His tactics are different. See, the lie we buy into in America is that we can find happiness and be filled by God with something other than God. We can find happiness and be, fit by, be fulfilled by something other than what, what God would have for us or the plan that he would have for us. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make your, for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath the waters below. Or earth beneath or in waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. See, in America, this is how idolatry plays out. It plays itself out in materialism. See, we Americans, we love stuff. We Americans, we work hard, we slave away, we pour out our lives for the American dream. I mean, it's the two-story house, a spouse, two kids, a dog, and a cat. Or here in Colorado Springs, it'd be nine kids and you add a horse. That's how it works. It's the American dream. And here is how idolatry affects the teenage culture. It's the teenager who decides not to go on that mission trip to serve the poor of another nation because they're working fervently to save money for that car. In fact, they're working so hard, they don't even have time to attend youth group anymore because that car has become more important to them. Idolatry plays itself out when the teenager, it's the teenager who dedicates all of his time and mental energy into their schooling, into their education, but never has time to pour out any of their focus into eternal things. You know, it was just a few months ago, I was, you know, shooing all the students into the sanctuary music had started. We were getting ready, you know, and I was, I was, I was pushing them all in to where, you know, our, to the tent where we meet. And uh, there were these two boys on the sofa and they weren't moving. You know, I, I, that makes me mad when I'm telling them to do something and no one's moving. So I'm like, hey, guys, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we're doing homework. I said, oh, well, church is starting, so why don't you just pack up and let's head on in. And they're like, no, my mom said I could come down here and do homework. I said, oh, she did. I said, well, I'm saying that you're not going to do homework down here and you're going to go into service. And if your mom has a problem with that, let me write my number down for you. And your mom can give me a call. I would love to talk to her. And that's what we did. And those guys packed up and went in. Now, they might have left later. I don't know. But they packed up and went in. All right? It's, it's those kind of things. It's, it's the young girl who has to have a specific pair of jeans because they just saw their best friend wear those pair of jeans. It's the young man or woman who spends all their time and dedication to playing sports. Church takes a back seat. A quiet time with God takes a back seat. Surrounding yourself with Christian peers and Christian friends takes a back seat. You know, idolatry plays itself out in other ways as well. It's the young man or woman who spends the majority of their time daydreaming about the next time they're going to get to see their boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, they text 75 times a day. They're on the phone morning and in the afternoon and at night. I mean, they're inseparable when they're together. I mean, you know the couples I'm talking about. The couples who are in your youth group sitting in the back or they're at your school and they're just walking around the hallways like... You know, or they're in the back and, 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 and they're, you know, someone's sitting beside them and they're just... 
oh, I missed you today. I love you. Your hair looks great. What did the preacher say? Oh, I don't care. I'm just focused on you because I love you. I mean, it's this type of thing, you know? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It drives me nuts. I'm like, bah. I just go up in front of them. I'm like, bah. what are you doing? This is church. Get your arm off of them. Quit grabbing their knee and their leg. I know you want more than that. I'm a guy. Set your boundaries. You're not respecting her. She's not respecting you. In fact, why don't you see here? Why don't you go over in section one? It's about 100 yards that way. My goodness. Sorry, I think I'm getting into some of my pet peeves. So idolatry in our nation plays itself out in a large way in wrong priorities. And wrong priorities is when something becomes more important to you than your relationship with God. Then it becomes an idol to you. When your love, time, devotion, attention, adoration are wrapped up in something other than Christ, you have fallen prey to idolatry. Xbox. Now listen, I like to play me a little Xbox sometimes. But the young man or the young woman that's playing Xbox for 25 hours a week online and they fail to spend any time with God, video games has become an idol. Whether you say it has or not, doesn't matter. Your time spent has proved it. Your girlfriend, education, sports, hobbies, you name it. None of these things are bad in and of themselves when there is balance. But when your time is consumed with them, instead of allowing God to consume your time, you have fallen prey to idolatry. And this is a huge open door for your generation. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Think about Think about what could be in your life. What are you placing before the Lord? What is it? Just think about it. What is it that's taking God's place? What is it that you're putting before God? And you're proving it by your time. You're proving it by your attention. You're proving it by your adoration. What is it? Idolatry. Huge open door to this generation. Let's go to door number two. Door number two is habitual sin. Everybody go, oh, habitual sin. You know, I was at Cedar Point uh, uh, a few years ago. How many of you ever been to Cedar Point? Anybody ever been to Cedar Point? Cedar Point's fun. Pastor Brandon has been dying to go to Cedar Point. I told him I'm going to take him there someday. Take me. (laughs) Cedar Point. So uh, I was with a buddy of mine uh, at Cedar Point, and he didn't really like heights that much. I don't know why he came to Cedar Point. But we were on the power tower. I don't know what it is. Power tower either shoots you way up or it drops you. And then it does it a couple times before the ride stops. So it's kind of this up and down, up and down, up and down. Anyway, we got up to the top and he was, I mean, his knuckles were white. His face was white. I mean, we were getting ready to drop. And so I just thought it'd be funny. I'd go over and start messing with his buckle on, the, on his, you know, because you're just hanging there, feet are in the air, like 300 and some feet. And, and I just... You know, I wasn't pushing anything. I just wanted to mess with it like I was messing. And, I, and he, was, he was freaking out. It was awesome. I loved it. I was messing with his buckle. Anyway, habitual sin is like that power tower. Habitual sin allows us to get into the cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. And there's so many of us that have struggled with that. You can't seem to get over it. You sin and you feel terrible, you feel horrible. Say, God, I don't want this anymore. Take this from me, forgive me. And he forgives you of your sins. But then the next hour, the next day, the next week, you find yourself in that sin again. It's like living a roller coaster life. You're on a roller coaster and you're just, sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess. It's a vicious cycle that is not ending unless you crush the sin. That's what habitual sin is. James chapter 4 says, resist the enemy and he will flee. So the cycle is not sin, confess, sin, confess. The cycle is sin, confess, resist. Resist the enemy. And you know what? Let me just give you a little secret. It's okay to talk to the enemy out loud. I mean, you don't have a conversation with him. You just tell him stuff. 
It's okay. It's okay to talk to him. You know, there are times when the enemy, when temptation will come. And let me tell you guys, because just because you get older and just because you've been a Christian a long, long time doesn't mean temptation doesn't come. That's not how the enemy works. All you boys uh, that, that, that struggle with pornography and those things, if you're thinking that, hey, you know, when I get married, this is all going to go away, that's a lie. The rest of your life, you're going to have to guard your heart. So you better guard it now, because if you don't guard it now, it's going to create all kinds of issues later in life. Guard it now. So this is what I do. This is what I do. When when the enemy comes and the temptation comes upon me, I just tell him, I said, "Uh uh-uh, that is a lie from the pit of lies. I do not agree with that. I do not receive that. I command you to be gone in the name of Jesus. I say it out loud. You ought to see the people look at me in the grocery store. I mean, they're looking at me wide-eyed. I said, do you want to receive it? And they're like, you know, it doesn't matter. The enemy doesn't care where you are when he tempts you. So I'm not going to care if I have to speak to him wherever I am. Tell him. Speak it out loud. Resist the enemy and he will flee. Guys, you have more authority. I heard one of the other speakers, I don't know if it was John Gray or Banny, but he said, man, you have more authority than you you know what to do with. When you have Christ, you have the authority. You can command the enemy to leave. And guess what? He has to leave. He cannot remain. He cannot stay. He has got to go. When you command him, you have that power. You have that authority. Guys, you have the power to heal. You have the power to cast out demons. You have the power to do anything that is spoken of in this scripture. You have the power to do it because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You can do it. So let's take advantage of that authority. Address the enemy out loud. Listen, you can close the doors to habitual sin this morning, no matter what it is. And you know what it is. You know which areas of your life look like the roller coaster or look like the power tower. And when you close those doors, I'm telling you, you need to have a game plan. Because the problem is you close those doors a lot, but you open them back up. And the next day or the next week, you open them back up. So how do we keep those doors closed? You know what? You just need to have a game plan. It's called, and I heard, I've heard David Perkins preach it. Man, it has stuck with me. He talked about it being personal legalism. Like, I'm not going to allow sin into my life. Here's an example. If you're struggling with pornography, and the only place you're struggling with it, because the computer's in the living room with your parents on, and you can't have it on unless your parents are in the room, so you're not struggling with it there. But, it's, you know, it's that, it's that iPod touch. It's that phone that, that you have internet access to, and you're in your room late at night, and, and it seems to always happen then because you're bored or you can't sleep, and you start surfing around on Facebook or Tumblr or Pinterest or something else, and in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, that's just kind of fly around in here and see what's in here. Thinking, oh, I don't want to look at anything and see anything. But then what happens is you see something and then you say, oh, well, let's see what else is in there. Let's see what else is in there. And you keep going. Well, here's what you got to do. You got to have a game plan. You know what? If I'm struggling with this, I'm going to charge my iPod touch. I'm going to charge my cell phone in my parents' room. Not in my room at night. I'm going to leave it in there from 6 p.m. on until I wake up and go to school, my iPod touch or my, it's in their room. You gotta, and if that doesn't work, I brought a sledgehammer. You can just crush it. Just break it. And listen, don't be going home and telling your parents, I told you to smash your phone or your iPod touch or anything else. Listen, I just told you to get a game plan together. That's your choice to crush it. Say, mom and dad, I need a phone that I can only call and text on. I don't need a phone that I can get on the internet with. I need a phone that I can call and text on. Here's my old phone. I'm sorry it's in several thousand pieces, but I'm getting violent with my actions here. I'm getting serious about righteousness and holiness. You guys ever play that game where you got to hold the sledgehammer up and you got to hold it straight? You got to let it not slam into your face. Don't try that at home. Okay. All right. The next door, door number three. Door number three is pride. This is a short one, but it's a big one. Pride. Pride is what caused the enemy to fall, right? Because he wanted God's seat. He wanted to be worshiped like God. It's what made him fall. Or I like to think it might have been God's right hook is what made him fall. You know, it just kicked him right out of there. But listen, pride, pride is, is caused, uh, 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 
Pride is the simple lie that says, I don't need God. Pride says, I can do it myself. And this thought process runs rampant in your generation. And let me tell you guys something. Pride is usually not taught. It's usually caught. It's caught from those you have in your life with influence over you. Don't become a victim of pride. Proverbs chapter three, verses five through eight says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. You know those guys that you might, you know, play a pickup game of basketball with and they think they're just awesome? They think they can dominate you. Or you play a game of flag football and they think they can throw the ball further than you. Or anything that you would play, they think they're better at it than you are. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I love it. You know, that could be pride. You got to squash it. You got to destroy it. Always walk in life with an attitude that I need God to do this. I need God to lead me. I need God to guide me. I need God in everything that I do. And pride won't be an issue for you. Door number four is a big one. Door number four. You ready for this? Sexual sin. This is a big one for your generation. See, the Bible teaches us that all sin carries with it consequences, and it does. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the consequences of sin are physical and spiritual death. Scripture is also very clear that sexual sin has consequences, but it also has added consequences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. There's the added consequences. I'm going to teach you about this in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Let me roll this whiteboard out and just teach you about this real quickly. This is something that we don't understand about sexual sin. We don't quite grasp this. We don't get it. Okay, that's good. So I'm going to teach you right now. All right. That's a girl. That's a boy. Okay. So let's say you've believed a lie that's been thrown at you. You believe that you need to, you know, have sex to take your relationship to the next level. But you know in Scripture it says, you know what, you need to wait for marriage. This is a, this is a holy sacrament. This is a covenant that God has made. This is something that is supposed to be a blessing for you in a marriage relationship. But we ignore all that. And, you know, we're believing the guy who's saying, oh, but you're my first one. You're my first love. And I just feel like this is going to take our relationship to the next level. And you're believing the lies. Oh, well, I'm going to marry him anyway. I mean, you're 16, 17. You've been dating this guy for three months. Oh, he's the one. You laugh, but I've heard this my entire 15-year career in youth ministry. You're the one. You're the one I want to be with. So what happens is you make a bad decision. You guys sleep together. You have sex. But what this guy didn't tell you is that he's already had sex with three other girls. Oh, don't go, oh, it happens all the time. All right, and then what happens is, who knows how many people they've had sex with. Maybe it's just two. And who knows how many they've had sex with. Maybe it's four here and one here and three here and, and, and two and maybe another one and maybe four. And then all of a sudden you don't know how many people these guys have had sex with. Now, according to scripture, you've become one flesh with that person. In the spiritual realm, you are linked together. That's called a soul tie. I'm not going to go into soul ties this morning and explain to you. I don't have time. But it's when two people are linked together, which... There, there's a godly soul tie. It's called in the, in the grounds of marriage. It's righteous. It's holy. It's what God ordained. It's what he wants. But here we have sinful soul ties. And you're connected to this person. You're one with them in flesh. Now, is this person here? Is he one with this person in flesh and this person in flesh and this person in flesh spiritually? Yes. 
And what about these guys? Are they one with these people and these people and these? Spiritually? Yes. Here's the added consequences. Would however the enemy is operating in these people's lives, maybe one of these people, maybe they're deep into Satanism and witchcraft. However the enemy is operating in these lives, all of a sudden they have a direct open door to begin to operate in your life. That's how sexual sin works. That's why when you get involved with that, you find yourself in just an entangled web of sin. But here's God's goodness and God's glory. How did you let all of this in? Your life is spiraling down. How did you let all of this in? This sin right here. You break this, you confess this, you renounce this, ask God to close this door, boom, wipes it all out. That's God's goodness. It's God's grace. Sexual sin. Door number five is also another big one. Door number five is bitterness and unforgiveness. There's so much sin in our world right now that has caused a lot of pain in this young generation. Bitterness and unforgiveness. You know, I had a young man walk into my office. It was early on in ministry. He walked in. He was struggling with a bunch of stuff and We didn't really know the full story at the beginning, but he was struggling with a bunch. So we began to walk him through this break-free process that we had developed, and and we just began to walk him through, and we got to, you know, he was involved in Satanism and the occult and different things, and we got to that, and we got through that, no problem. We got through all those different things, and he began to just confess and repent, just the spiritual house cleaning in his life. And then all of a sudden, we got to section number eight, and section number eight was bitterness and unforgiveness. And that was the longest section of time that we had to spend was on that. Because see, this young man, his dad had just walked out on him. His dad had left him and his mom for another woman. He had to drop out of his senior year of high school. He had to get a job full-time at a pizza parlor just to continue for him and his mom to hold on to their little apartment. He had to do that. All of a sudden, his dad stripped him of the father, stripped him of the solid marriage, stripped him of his future because he had plans on going to college the next year. He wanted to be like AV tech stuff, you know. I don't know what college you go to, but he had it all set up. He had it squared away. He was going to do all that stuff and learn about all that and be part of that. And, 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 and his dad just took that all from him when he walked away. Ruined him. Ruined him financially. Ruined his life. And we began to work through that. We begin to talk about that. We begin to walk through how unforgiveness just hurts you. How if you hold on to it, it destroys you. And anyway, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but as we got to the end of that, he prayed one of the most incredible prayers I've ever heard a young person pray. He began to pray for his dad after an hour and a half of talking and explaining and working through this. He began to pray for his dad. He began to pray that his dad would be blessed financially, that his new relationship with this girl would be blessed, that that his presence would be with him. He just began to pray this incredible, I mean, I knew the kid had forgiven his dad because I wouldn't even pray that over his dad. I mean, it was amazing. I was in tears. And when he got done, he reached into the backpack he had on and he pulled out a gun and he set it on the desk and he said, if this didn't work today, I was going to go shoot my dad. We just saved that kid. God saved that kid from a life of imprisonment because he simply forgave the people that hurt him. See, the lie is... The lie we believe is that we don't deserve, that is that the people that have hurt us, they don't deserve forgiveness. But the truth is, neither did you. But that didn't stop Jesus to going to the cross for you. And all of us are going to experience hurt and offense by others as we go through life. But these are not open doors. These are not sin when other people hurt us. However, how we respond to these situations can be sinful and open a door in our life when we don't want to respond the way God has instructed us to in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. 
Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. See, when others wrong us, we can choose not to forgive them and harbor bitterness against them. And this is one way to go. But when we choose this route, we become a wide open target for the enemy. And listen, you have to live with the consequences of someone else's sin anyway, right? I mean, whether you forgive or not, you're going to have to live with those consequences. So you have a choice. Just like the young man who walked into my office, you can live with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and allow that person to continue to hurt you day after day after day after day. Or you can release them. You can let them off your hook so that God can begin to heal your heart. Remember, you let them off your hook, but they're still on God's hook. He is the judge. We are not. Give them over to the hands of God. Let God be God. Let him deal with them. And trust me, God is a just God and justice will be served. Forgiveness is never an issue. Listen to this, young people. Forgiveness is never an issue between you and that person that hurts you. Forgiveness is always an issue of obedience between you and God. Always. You don't have to go to that person. You don't have to rehash anything. You don't have to say, I forgive them. You don't have to do that. Forgiveness is an issue between you and God. And here's what I've always instructed students to do. You grab a piece of paper. You can grab a part of your book there. You just draw a line down the middle. And on one side, you just begin to write out the people that you've harbored bitterness and unforgiveness to. You just write those names out on the, in the left column. In the right column, what you do is you write down what they did to you and how they made you feel. And then what you do is you give that to the Lord. You say, God, it's this person. This is what he did. This is how it made me feel. But God, right now with your strength, with your power, with your grace, I forgive them for this. I forgive them for making me feel this way in the name of Jesus. And you just to work your way through that list. God, as I've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. Students just walking through that. I don't even have to do anything. I just sit there and pray for them as they're going through it. And all of a sudden they wind up free free from that stuff. And it's no matter what people have done to you. And I know there are sick people out there. And I know there are sick things that have been done. But trust me, you don't want to live with that. Let it go. Let God heal you. Don't worry about that other person. God's got them. Okay? Door number six, last one. Now, for this door, the Lord last night during worship changed it on me. It was God's going to talk to you about media, and media can be a huge open door, but the Lord told me he wanted me to speak on fear. So I'm writing it on here. Fear. Fear's a big deal. It's a big deal in your generation. In fact, there was a, about a five-year to six-year process in my own life where I dealt with fear. You see, from almost from the day that I started youth ministry, I started having these attacks at night from the enemy. How many of you ever sense an evil presence in your room? All over. How many of you ever feel like you've been pinned to your bed or this pressure on your chest where you couldn't speak and couldn't talk, couldn't move for a few seconds? All over. You know what that is? It's an intimidation tactic from the enemy. He wants to scare you. He wants to cause you and paralyze you, because that's what fear does. Fear paralyzes you, and when you're living with fear, you can't do anything to advance God's kingdom at all. That's what the enemy does. So I didn't know that. I grew up in a Nazarene church. <laughs> no one taught me about that stuff. From almost the day that I started youth pastoring, the enemy started coming to attack. And I struggled. I struggled for five or six years. My wife struggled for that time after we got married. It started before we got married, then after we got married, it kept going. And I mean, we struggled with this fear. There were times when we wouldn't go home to our apartment. We would drive around the neighborhoods in the city because we were afraid what was waiting for us. That's a crappy way to live. I had dealt with some demonics, which put even more fear. I mean, those demons would say the ugliest, nastiest things to me. Scared me to death. <laughs> there was one portion at the end. It was about a month and a half, two months, where I was in such oppression. Not depression, oppression. Like I just felt the enemy. I mean, I was looking over my shoulder. I was looking around at corners. I was looking at shadows. I mean, I was, 
I was not doing anything for the kingdom of heaven. I'd walk into my office, I would sit behind my computer, and I would stare at the screen for eight hours, then I'd go home. So oppressed. And I got on my face. And I know there's a lot of things in your generation that cause you to fear and cause you to worry and cause you to doubt. In that moment, I don't know what came over me. I don't know what rose up within me, but something rose up inside of me and said, I am not going to live like this anymore. And I got down on my face underneath my desk and I began to weep. I began to cry. And in that moment, God began to speak to me. He said, John, you fear because you don't trust me. You don't trust that I'm stronger than the enemy. Your faith in me is that I'm not powerful enough to deliver you and rescue you and protect you and keep you. And I began to repent. And I said the words, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me for not trusting you with my life. Forgive me for not believing that the God of the universe, the God of the ages has more power than the enemy. And I began to pray those things. And in that moment, when I got done, that oppression released, that oppression lifted, and it has never returned. And I vowed. See, I had wrong thinking patterns all locked up in my head. But I vowed in that moment. I vowed and said, Lord, under my watch, this generation will not fear. I mean, I've I've taken students, you know, all over the world. I've made them snorkel with sharks and crawl through caves and I've made them jump off stuff that they're terrified. I just made them do it. I pushed them if they wouldn't go. I said, you will not fear. You will overcome every fear in your life because the fearless are the ones that advance the kingdom. It's the fearless ones that will go after God's heart. It's the fearless ones that the enemy is no match for. He can't stand in front of you. He can't stop you. You just roll right over him. It's the fearless ones. I had one of my students posted on Facebook. I thought it was hilarious. He said, my biggest fear, dot, dot, dot. John McDonald finds out my biggest fear. (laughs) If you struggle with fear this morning, you can break that. You don't have to be afraid of anything. And it's the little things that you fear that can even allow the enemy in to cause even greater fears. You know, I had to deal with God at one moment just fearing how my kids are going to grow up. I said, you know what? I'm not going to fear that. I had to repent. I said, God, you know what? You've got them. They're in your hands. They're your kids. You just allowed me to nurture them, love them, and raise them up in the right way. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do my part, and you do your part. There's nothing to fear. And I make my little boys do all kinds of stuff. We'll go out to the mountains, and my kid will be up a 30-foot cliff with no ropes or anything before I even know what's going on. I'm like, don't move. And I'll have to climb up. I said, I don't care if you climb stuff. I don't care if you're on the edge of dying. Just let me be under you so I can catch you. And that's what God wants to do for you this morning. He's ready to catch you. I'm going to invite you forward in just this morning. All of these doors, these different doors, there's there's more. But I I felt like these were the main ones for you this morning. The main ones that are impacting you. The main ones that could be open, the doors in your life that could be open that you've struggled with. And this morning you can have freedom. This morning these chains can break. This morning God can do a work in your lives to where you will never deal with that stuff again. And I'm going to ask you to be brave this morning. I want you to come to the door that you know you need to close in your life. You come to that door. No one's judging you. There's no shame here. There's no guilt here. That's from the enemy. Shame and guilt is always from the enemy. Conviction which leads to righteousness is always from God. I want you to come this morning. Just kneel in front of the door. 
No spectacular altar call. Come now. Kneel in front of the door. They feel like you want to close today. There's no judgment. I'm going to ask youth pastors and youth leaders. We're just going to, I know we're, we're just going to spend like five minutes. I'm going to ask those of you that know how to break strongholds. I want you to come. I just want you to begin to pray over students. I don't care if they're your own students, someone else's kids. It doesn't matter. We're all in this together. We're on the same team. We're the same church. Let's break the power of these strongholds. And listen, students, listen to me right now. When you get up here, just kneel down. Listen to me right now. Here's how you break these. You come before God with honesty. He already knows what you're struggling with. Just be honest with him. Declare it. God, here's what I'm struggling with. You come before him with honesty. You come before him in the spirit of humility saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. You confess it. Say, God, forgive me. I repent. Then you renounce it. You know what renouncing means? It means rejecting it. Say, God, I reject this sin. I reject this influence in my life. I reject it right now in the name of Jesus. It has no hold on me anymore. And you reject it. And you say, God, fill me with your spirit. Every place of occupancy that the enemy once held in me, I ask you to fill with the Holy Spirit. And I declare at this moment, I am free.